for the remainder of this year, up through Advent, um, we're going to be looking at the book of Psalms, which most of you are familiar with. Um, probably you recognize it most for its Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You've probably heard that a time or two. But really what the Psalms are is a collection of poems, of prayers, of thank- recitations, things that were meant to be used in public worship for the encouragement of the church, obviously for the praise of the Lord and for the encouragement of the body. And so it has endured as the journal of kings and other worshipers for 3,000 years. That's a, that's a remarkable thing. I, I can't really wrap my brain around that many years, but let that sit, sit for a minute, because there's something amazing that that says about the quality of this book. Not only is it inspired by the Word, by God's own Spirit, so that should be enough, but it is also an absolutely remarkable work of poetry. It's an absolutely beautiful insight also that we gain by reading it into the heart and mind of the people who went before us in the faith. And so I want to tell you a little bit about the Psalms in general before we look at the first chapter today. And hopefully this will be helpful in just sort of framing the conversation and understanding what it is that we're looking at here. It's a book comprised of 150 psalms that, like I said, were meant to be used in public worship. It's been called the hymn book of the Old Testament or of the church uh, since the days of Moses, which is, in fact, our earliest psalm, which is Psalm 90. It's the prayer of Moses, which is dated between 1450 and 1400 B.C. And the latest psalms we have are around the time of 500 B.C., which is after Israel's exile. So it's spanning a thousand years, roughly, of the church, capital C, in their various seasons of life that that they've endured. They've gone through all kinds of hardships and victories. They've crossed the Red Sea. They've seen God come down on a mountain for crying out loud and give the word of God to Moses. These people have witnessed amazing things. They've witnessed exile and mistreatment. They've witnessed all kinds of things, and and this is their journal through that time, through those thousand years. This is what they, how they related to God, how they spoke with Him through those seasons. And so, I think that's deeply instructive for us. Not only that we would read and understand their words, but that we would adopt their mindset as we pray. It should inform the way we have interactions with God through seasons of trouble and prosperity. Uh, it's interesting also to note, at least it is to me, that the words have been preserved for us, but not the music. And I'm a musician, and that's a little bit disappointing for me, honestly. But I would love nothing more than to hear what David sounded like on the harp, on his lyre, you know, like a little guitar thing, uh, singing these songs before King Saul, and hearing hearing him sing and fill the, the chamber of the king with, with worship music. But I, we don't have the music. We have the words, however, and that is a priceless treasure, and I think it's also instructive that the Word of God lives forever. You know, these these things, these instruments, these particular arrangements of songs, they they have a place in this time, this season of the church's life. And they too will go on and pass on and be something of yesterday. But the Word of the Lord, the the Word, even not just the explicit Word of God, but even the, the sentiments that are expressed in these songs will live live on. 
Of the 283 direct quotes from the Old Testament and the New Testament, 116 of them, that's 41%, are from the book of Psalms. Jesus himself refers to the Psalms uh, 50 times. And so it's a, it's a significant book, and it's also pretty central in the middle of your Bible. If you're having a hard time finding it, sort of look at what's 50% of the pages and split it, and you're going to end up near the Psalms anyway. And so it's, it's really... Uh, literally and figuratively a, a central look to the life of devotion following Christ. The structure is, is quite amazing too. If you get the midweek videos and, and weekend e- um, emails, I mean, the video that went out this last Wednesday is pretty cool. It's, if you haven't seen it, um, YouTube search Psalms Bible Project. And this, these people, they actually outline the whole structure of the Bible. And what you realize is that this was not an accidental collection of, of poems. It's, it's actually got tremendous structure and uh, an amazing mind behind it. So the first two chapters are introductory, and that's not a cursory thing. They are, in fact, the gateway to the Psalms. If you understand Psalms 1 and 2, you get what the rest of the book is going to tell you. And so they're the, the gateway, the entryway, Psalms 1 and 2. And then on the Early In the early part of the Psalms, you're going to hear a lot of lament songs. Laments are cries for deliverance. They're cries for help. You'll hear language like, how long, O Lord, will you stand far off? How long, how far away is your deliverance? Come and rescue me. Rescue your servant from the hands of my enemies. You'll hear a lot of those laments for the first half of the book. And I think that's pretty cool to know that, that, that God recognizes our sorrows and our struggles that he gives us these psalms of lament that train us how to righteously, faithfully endure hardship. But then as the psalms progress, it ends with 146 through 150 being psalms of praise. Praise the Lord, all the earth, language of just high, uplooking praise. And so if you're looking at the book as a whole, you can recognize that the first Introductory chapters introduce a season of lament and cycles of lament and praise and cycles of thanksgiving and sorrow and praise and lament and praise and lament. And it ends up, as you ascend through the Psalms, as you read, we are led in our soul, really, to have a comic vision. That's not a ha-ha comic, it's a classic sense of comedy. That it ends, it begins low and it ends high. It's a... It's an opposite trajectory of the way this earth is going, physically speaking, right? It's the Lord is redeeming his people and we have a future hope of glory. And so even the structure of the Psalms teach us how to endure in this life. The Psalms of praise um, are one category. There's also Psalms of petition, which is just, Lord, uh, you know, serve, uh, help your servant, give him what he needs for life, thanksgiving is obvious, and prayers of lament, as I've mentioned. And so almost half of these psalms are laments, and almost half are David's. Uh, not the laments, but half of the psalms are ascribed to, are attributed to David. And David is the king who was the shepherd boy who took a stone and a sling and crushed the head of Goliath. And you'll recall, if you've been in the church for any length of time, that there's a great image that that forecasts. There's a, a picture in that story of David slaying Goliath that, that points forward to Jesus who will crush the head of the serpent. And so in all, 
and the final analysis and on the highest level of interpretation, the Psalms are about Jesus. Well, it shouldn't surprise us because all of Scripture speaks of him. But even as we read the words of a king, King David, while he's hiding in a cave from King Saul, King Solomon and his wisdom, as we read these words, we need to remember also that they speak prophetically of the reign of King Jesus, whose death and resurrection will deliver his people. And our task as we meditate on these psalms is to tune our souls to David's lyre. It's to make his prayers our own, to tune into the frequency, if you will, of what it is that he's seeing in God in, in light of his circumstances. So that when we endure seasons of life, we too may walk with faithfulness. And so for all that's changed over the thousands of generations of human existence, we share with the psalmist and all of those faithful people who have gone before us a common experience of life and seasons. We experience cycles of life and death. We experience cycles of sorrow and joy, plenty and want. Even our own wedding vows acknowledge this. On the happiest day of the relationship, that's not meant to say anything about how the, the rest of the relationship goes, <laughs> but on the iconic happy day of your relationship, your wedding day, you're still acknowledging the truth that the day of sorrow will come. You're acknowledging that in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, richer or poorer, we're committed to this. And so that is a common experience to man that has preceded us for generations. And so the Psalms are wonderful because they, they sum up, they, they really encapsulate the whole of the human experience. They, every emotion, every, the range of life experiences, they capture it in this book. And we get to see how they respond in both the days of trouble and prosperity. So that's what we've named the series, the Psalms, Praise and Day of Trouble and Prosperity. And the day of trouble is really, a, it's, it's taking language from the Psalms. The day of trouble is, is sort of an umbrella under which falls drought and famine and death and sickness and sorrow and pain and persecution and affliction. Any day that looks to be just uh, desolate and, and troublesome is the day of trouble. And obviously it's opposite the day of prosperity. It's, it's the day when abundance is springing up. You have, you seem to go through life with this noble knowledge that the Lord has, has given, um, given you a spirit of praise and thanksgiving and fullness. And so together, the days of trouble and prosperity, the Psalms that speak of lament and praise, they teach us together how we should endure the day of trouble and how we should steward the days of abundance. And so with all of that in mind, let's turn to Psalm 1. Remembering that Psalms 1 and 2 are really one introductory chapter, but Psalm 1 is a beautiful gateway. It's, a, it's an open door to invite you to see these themes that we're going to talk about today throughout the rest of the Psalms. So we read... Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 
He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Will you pray with me as we go back through this more in a fine-tooth poem and, and really talk more about it? Let's open the, God's word with prayer. Father, we give you thanks for this word, this word of life to us. <clears throat> we confess again, Lord, our anxieties in this life sometimes far outweigh the joy of your word. <clears throat> and so, Father, we pray you'd anchor us again. And you show us an image of life with you that would be so overwhelming to us that we would delight, Lord, delight ourselves in the law of the Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I think the first question we need to go back to is, is what does it mean to be the blessed man? <clears throat> Blessedness in Scripture, you know, on the outward, in the outward sense, it's characterized by fertility and dominion and dominion. It's echoing the garden. Remember when God first blessed the man, he said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And then the second thing, subdue it, subdue the earth, fill the earth and subdue it. And so there's a sense in which as we fulfill that mandate that was given us by God, we experience that as a form of blessing. And that plays out practically speaking like this. We, for example, train up children who will walk in the ways of righteousness and who will govern over their flesh, the passions of their flesh and the corruptions of this world. So there's prosperity is fertility and dominion. But the kind of blessedness that we read about in the Psalms and throughout Scripture is more than that. There's a fundamental level that's beneath that superficial level that is less about who, it's less about what happens to you in life in other words, the blessedness or happiness, if you want to call it that, isn't based on what happens externally. It's, it's something deeply rooted within. It's more about who you are than what happens to you and less about the smiles and lightheartedness all the time. You know, I think some Christians get that wrong, and I'm sure I've been guilty. We've all been guilty at times when a brother or sister comes to you in their distress and life is collapsing all around them, and, and our only thought of comfort is, well, you know, let's see, I want to tell them to take joy in the Lord, so slap a smile on your face, brother, everything's going to be okay. That's not, that's not it. The, the kind of happiness, the kind of blessedness that we're going to learn about today is not a brainwashing, uh, Christian brainwashing that, rela- um, that denies the reality of sadness, but it's far more genuine than that. It's profoundly deep contentedness that's experienced even in the midst of the worst surroundings. And so if we wish to be this blessed man, what do we have to do? Well, he gives us three things not to do first, and then he follows up with a positive. First, he says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So he's telling us that we have to isolate ourselves from those who travel down the way of wickedness. Now, don't, don't hear me saying shun unbelievers. That's not, that's, not the, the, that's not it. It doesn't mean shun unbelievers. What it means is that those who walk with the wise will become wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. That's Proverbs 
13.20. Those who walk with the wise will become wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. We have to be mindful of who our companions are, whose company we take, whose advice, whose counsel we listen to. So we have to refuse to find commonality, common vision of the world with certain people, the wicked, the sinners, the scoffers. To be wicked in scripture means, it means that you call something that's evil good. It means that you look on the good and you call it evil. It's a reversal of the righteous man. Notice the way that the psalmist describes the degeneration of the soul that follows setting foot on your path, on that path. There's a slowing that happens with each verb, walking, standing, and finally sitting. We walk in the counsel of the wicked. Well, that's, in essence, it's, it starts by putting a toe on the path and going, oh, it's not so bad. And what happens is we become hardened to sin first. We become tolerant. We, the vulgar things that used to ter- like be terribly offensive to us become not such a big deal anymore. And, Sure enough, eventually we find ourselves walking in the counsel of these people who live this way, who live as though the evil things are good. Which, of course, then necessarily follows that we would pattern, that pattern of thinking would then lead us to a pattern of behavior. And so we stand in the way of sinners, and on the way, on the road with sinners, we stand in with them. And finally, a pattern of identification and sitting. We place all of our weight, all of... It, it possesses me, it owns me. I, I have sat down in this seat and I am now identified by that, by that sin. So from the pattern of thinking to the pattern of behavior to the pattern of identification, this is a, a slippery slope and we're told to be watchful, not to even set toe on that path. So that's what not to do. So then he goes on and he says, this is what you are to do. But he delights in the law of the Lord And on his law, he meditates day and night. In contrast to the wicked man, the righteous man doesn't find pleasure in ungodliness. He doesn't look at lawlessness and say, yeah, that's what I want. No, his delight is in receiving wisdom from somebody outside of himself. It's it's receiving wisdom from God through his spirit and his word. If you think about it, it's kind of humbling that the psalmist here is referring, he only had the first five books of our Bible at this time. And so, you know, he's saying he delights in the law of the Lord. How much more then should we delight in the finished scriptures? We know the end. We know the new covenant in Christ's blood. We know our future destination. We know where that road of righteousness leads. And we have a Redeemer who did what we couldn't do. How much more than should we delight in the law of the Lord? What it means to delight, okay, that word delight, it's, it's fairly obvious that we take pleasure, we, we delight in reading God's word, but I want to encourage you to think of it in this way. To delight in the word of God means that you think, therefore you act, and therefore you identify as one for whom God himself not his reward, his favor, or any other thing is the prize. God himself is the prize, not his reward, not his blessings, not the things of this earth that make us happy. 
It's a good unto itself to pursue the Lord, and we find him in his word. It's a good unto itself, not as a means to another end. See, I think what happens so easily for most of us is we take the general principles of the word and we say, yes, amen, I should be kind to my neighbor, I should serve the poor, I shouldn't you know, do certain things that the Bible commands me not to do, and should be honest. But you know, there are times where we need to make excuse or be excused from that, right? We need to have exceptions to some of these principles. So we believe in being honest up to the point where it's going to cost us our happiness. Like if I'm going to be in accountability with some brothers and sisters and I have to be honest about my sin and what a wretch I am, they're going to look back at me and they might say, Ryan, you need to get on a program of accountability. That's going to be pretty, pretty painful, actually. I don't want that. I don't want to be unhappy. So you know what? I'm just going to keep that behind the curtain. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to protect my happiness, but I'm, I'm going to give them a little bit of honesty, but I'm going to hold the rest of this back, you know, and just don't want to see how that goes. Or when it comes to spiritual disciplines, I think that that trap of serving God as a means to another end is even more subtle in the spiritual disciplines. You know, we read the Bible because it has a lot of wise things to say about how to live our lives and how to become a better husband, father, employee, fill in the blank. The Bible is instructing me how to have a better, more successful life. Or I go to church because it's a good way to clear my mind and refocus on the week ahead. Or I pray because, well, I want God to bless me and I want it to be successful my, my every day. I want, it to, I want it to be successful and, and even in his eyes. And so I pray. Now, that's, it's, that's not lighting in the law of the Lord as a means and as an end in itself. It's just basically another way, all of that is basically another way of me saying, I want happiness, and God is the way I'm going to get there. I'll listen to the voice of the Spirit. I'll put aside the things that He tells me to put aside. I'll get on that airplane and I'll go to that country on that mission trip. I will take my family and put them through... You know, Christian school and, and, the, and the kinds of sacrifices that I need to make there. I'll do all of that, but when it comes time to, you know, whatever it is, fill in the blank, maybe there's an example in your life. When God calls you to do something that just feels like, yeah, that's right over that line. That's too far. Delighting in the law of the Lord is finding our pleasure, our hope in Him, and that is the non negotiable, not our happiness. Tim Keller has said that there are only two ways to come to God. The first is, I come to you, God, owing you everything, expecting absolutely nothing in return, not good health, not material blessings, nothing. And the second way is, I come to you because I believe you'll help me succeed and have a happy life. And he asks the question, Tim Keller asks the question, how will you know on what basis you've come to God? Which of those two have you, have you come to God for? And of course, we all want to answer for the first one. Well, of course, I come to God for God. You know, I, I don't want anything in return. I don't expect it. He doesn't owe me anything. He's God and I'm not. We want to say that. And, and yet he says, how you'll know on what basis you've come to God is, is if you find yourself thinking, feeling, or saying things like this. A lot of good it did me to pray for that. I've gone to church. And I still don't have that relationship, or I still don't have that success, or 
whatever it may be. So why is that a problem? I mean, I think it might be obvious, but just to go a step further, why is it a problem that we would seek God not as the source of our delight, but as a means to a greater end? Well, first of all, it tells us, it reveals something about our heart, and what it reveals is what's most important to us. It peels back the clouds and curtains and smoke and mirrors that we like to put up, and it says, that's actually what you're living for. Secondly, I think it's a problem that it's not an end in itself to seek God. Just because there's so much more to the gospel that you're missing. If the only way you know of God is by Him blessing in the sense of material blessing, all of the circumstances that keep your life spinning in a, in a way that's pleasing to you. Because ultimately what happens when the conditions of our life deteriorate? When the storm of life comes and washes it all away, what are you left with? Well, the gospel has answers for that. Seeking God as a means to some other end does not. And thirdly, if I can just speak directly to the seasoned Christians in the room. Notice how I said seasoned, not old. <laughs> Older, experienced, wiser Christians in the room. Uh, I think this is, I, I grew up in the church and, and um, I assume that a lot of you did too, or at least have been a Christian for a long time. I think it's particularly dangerous for us. It's a, a pit that we can fall into more easily maybe because, first of all, we don't see it in ourselves. It's not readily visible to us. Of course I'll answer the right way. I know the answers. I've lived that. I may even feel on some level that way. But So I might need somebody actually to point out to me that, no, actually... You may not say it that you're using God to get that, but you know, let's let's look, let's back up and look at it. And you may need to humbly receive that from a brother or sister. Secondly, I think it's particularly a trap for the seasoned Christian because there are people in this community who have recently come to faith who are looking to you as the spiritual shepherds. They're looking at your attitude, they're looking at the way you come into church the way you order your life, because it's ordered according to what's most important to you. And so when they look at you like a newborn baby, the first way a newborn baby knows their world is by imitation. They experience things tangibly and they see mom smile and they smile back. People who are infants in the faith, and that's not a put down, that's, a, that's just a fact. Some people have just begun on this road. And they're looking to people like yourself, the seasoned Christian, what does this really look like in the end? You know, after I've been 15, 20, 40, 60 years down the road, what, what will be my desire then? What will I look like then? They're looking to you as their spiritual mothers and fathers, and they will imitate what they see in you. That's sobering, I think. So you ought to examine yourself. When they look at you and watch how you order your life, what will they see? Will they see serving God, expecting absolutely nothing in return? No bitterness, no root of, well, a lot of good that does me. Or will they see someone who brings church, brings God into their program? We keep on going here and read that his delight, that is the, the man of righteousness, his delight is in the law of the Lord as a good in itself, not a means to another end. 
And on his law, he meditates day and night. That word meditates is awesome because it actually means practice. It's put something in practice. It's not just thinking cognitively about what the scripture is saying here. Okay, a tree, I get it. Check. It's practice. We put, we, when we meditate on the word of God, it's like we're chewing on it before we swallow, digest it, and absorb its nutrients. There's, there's something to be said for actually putting into practice, even mentally rehearsing these things. Laying on your bed at night, picturing yourself, okay, am I the tree or am I the chaff? Asking which path am I, you know, considering these things. Chew on it. Let it speak to you more than just a, a, an intellectual level, but on a heart level. We experience the passage that way as we meditate, as we practice it. And in order to help plant, or excuse me, uh, express that in a more vivid way, he gives us an analogy of a tree. So he says, he's like a tree planted by streams of water. The streams of water we can understand are the spirit of God and his word. And the tree is firmly rooted. It's firmly rooted and it's productive. It has utility. It serves a purpose. And it's planted. I think that's an awesome word too because what that tells me is that it's, it implies ownership. It implies a personal presence. I'm not some wild tree growing off in a forest that no one's ever seen or heard of. Lord God Almighty, creator of all things, has looked on you, Christian. And he has uprooted you from your former life and he has planted you in soil that's rich with nutrients because it's by the word and spirit, the stream. You're planted beside streams of living water that yields its fruit in season, we read. This tree will yield its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. If you really think about what's just been said, it says you're not always going to be productive. I'm going to let that sit maybe more uncomfortably than I'm ready to do. Let that sit. Let me say it again. There are seasons of our lives as believers when we will not, we cannot be throwing fruit off our limbs productive. See, God ordains that there are seasons of winter. It's not, it's not, we can't deny that there are seasons in our life where we go through trouble, where we go through winter, where it seems like for all of the work and effort and labor, where's it going? What are we doing? You know, what are we doing? You experience winter when sickness comes into your house, when it's a physical illness or a mental illness, when depression becomes a dark cloud and you have no frame of reference which way's up and down. It's hard to be productive if you don't know which way's up and down, by the way. You don't know where you're going in the dark. If you, if you have been in a season ever of depression, I, I want to speak to you and say, sometimes you're going to feel like the chaff in this passage. I want to encourage you, be rooted in the Word. Be rooted in the Spirit, because it's just a season of winter. We're promised, in fact, that we're going to have those, so there's no avoiding it. We will have seasons of winter. And what will be the test of our metal is how will we endure in that season? 
How will we endure in a season of trouble? And how will we steward the abundance of the day of blessing, of the day of prosperity? And yet, this is, this is also an important point in that passage. He's just said it yields its fruit in season, implied. Sometimes it's not in season. And yet, what does it keep doing? It keeps drawing from the waters of life, and its leaf then does not wither. It doesn't collapse in on itself in despair. This will never be over. I'm getting nothing out of this anymore, right? It's a, it's a root, deep, drawing from the waters of life, the knowledge that the Lord of the harvest has it, has this, he has it plan for you, in fact, that you'll go through these times. And so the psalmist and, and the scriptures as a whole are teaching us to think ironically, I think, about our circumstances of happiness, because all of us, we're human beings, we all experience days that are just not happy, not good, painful. Sometimes you'll go through, like we've just been talking about, long seasons of drought, and Yet the, the man of righteousness, the blessed person, this, this is teaching us that, ironically, it's actually then that we shine. It's actually then that we are forced, in a sense, to put our roots deeper into the Word of God and into the Spirit. It teaches us to drive deeper and deeper and deeper until again we find our source of life in the wellspring that is God's spirit and word. And well, times of winter, we don't have that, do we? We would be tempted, I think, to think, well, look how fruitful I am. This is, this is me. We're going to go through seasons of pruning. So it is with the blessed man, the psalmist says, though he is subject at times, like everything else in all creation, to harsh conditions, and though looking at his face, you may only be able to perceive one who is burdened with care and sorrow. Yet inwardly, deep down, roots deep, he's alive and joyful. His joy is not a smile on the face, it's a, it's a deep contentedness. It's a contentment in the fact that God has me in the palm of his hand. Now, a happy consequence of living a life like that is that you reflect somebody in the word, in the, in the Bible, a famous character in the Bible, who suffers death in order to bring forth fruit. And his name is Jesus. Maybe you've heard of him. His name is Jesus. And we're told in Scripture that this is actually how we look like Christ, is by enduring the cross. You can't look like Jesus without a cross. Apostle Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians we have this treasure in, char in jars of clay to show that this surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You hear that? It belongs to God, not me. I'm the tree. I'm not the source of life. We're afflicted in every way. You mean the blessed man too? Yeah. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed. <clears throat> Times we're in the fog. We don't know what's going on. God, where are you? But not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. 
For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh. So, death is at work in us, but life in you. The man who delights himself in the law of the Lord will be afflicted, be perplexed, persecuted, struck down, but he will not be cut off from the life source. His leaf will not wither, he will stand firmly rooted right where his planter uh, planted him, right where his owner put him. And he'll draw from the streams of water in season and out, bearing fruit, looking green and happy and great or not. He's rooted by these streams of water, and he will not move. And that is where the psalmist turns this around, and he gives you the opposite. You'll see this a lot as we go through the study of Psalms, that, that poetry in this, this kind of poetry in the Psalms likes to do things called parallelisms, which means I'm going to say one thing and I'm going to say something else, and they're incomplete by themselves, but they teach one another. And so now he's going to show us this, the opposite side. He's told us what the righteous way looks like. Now he's going to tell us what the wicked way looks like. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff isn't rooted. It's not standing still. It's moving. There's this digression, right, in the, in the way of the wicked from this, the walking to standing to sitting. I'm in, I'm, I've identified myself as chaff. Oh, wait. No, I'm, I, now I'm... I'm going to be blown by this wind over here. Now I'm identified with this group and with this, with these standards of living and with, with these morals and values. And I'm going to be tossed here and there and everywhere. If, if that's, if my, if I'm on the path of wickedness and I'm responsive as chaff to every wind of change, that's my life here. But it goes on to say that the wind drives it away. And that's a, that's a statement of judgment. Ultimately, the tree of life bears fruit. The tree, the man planted by streams of water, bears fruit for the kingdom of God, and he's planted there ultimately in heaven. But the man who delights in evil, the wicked man, is like chaff, just waste. It's the crops waste. It's dry, fallen from life, withered. And when the wind of judgment blows, the tree will stand firm, and the chaff will be driven to destruction. And at the beginning of this chapter, we may have felt a small bit of pity and, and sadness for the fact that the blessed man has to remove himself from certain company, because that does limit our choices, doesn't it? And friends, and places we go, and things we watch, and things we do, and think. We felt a little bit bad, I think, for ourselves and for, and for this blessed man. But if you look, now it is the wicked that are ultimately truly cut off and isolated. They may have mocked you for not participating in their ways, but in the end, they're the ones isolated, not only from their fellow man, but from their very source of life. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. And finally, in verse 6, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So the Bible presents us with two roads. The way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. Which path are you on? Which road are you on? The truth of your answer will be tested by how we endure the days of trouble, how you steward the days of prosperity. And as I thought about that this week, I, I was reminded of the character Joseph, uh, Jacob's son, Technicolor Dreamcoat guy. Joseph, 
Remember, he interpreted a dream that said, for seven years, you're going to endure, you're going to experience great abundance. There's going to be joy all through the kingdom, and it's just going to be more than you can possibly eat. And then that's followed by seven years of scarcity, of famine. And the wise man, the blessed man, the one who knows that winter is coming, he stores up food. He stores up the word of God and the knowledge of his faithfulness in the past. In the season of abundance, while God is just so present and so real, and man, we're thriving. Lock that away in your heart. Lock it away in your journal, even. I mean, that's what they did. That's what these psalms are. Lock it away. God's faithfulness. Because there's a day of winter coming. And you can still be rooted in God's word and in his promises by recalling his day, the days of faithfulness, by recalling that God has not changed. He was faithful then, he will yet be faithful again. As much as we look back, in closing I'll say just this last thing and I want to read to you something. The Psalms teach us to look back. Okay, In the season of Scarcity in the season of famine. We're remembering God's past faithfulness to give us hope for this moment. They also teach us to look ahead. Because as I said at the beginning, these psalms, they are penned by real kings from real times in history that you can look up even in secular textbooks. You, these people lived and breathed and actually wrote these words. And, and yet they teach us not only to look back, but to look forward to the king who's coming. King Jesus, who did come, who took the tree of curse and death and turned the bitter into sweet, turned it into the tree of life. And he offers to you and to me salvation in his name, and not just that, in the meantime, while we wait for his return, he's promised us that we will be planted in the garden of heaven. We will be by the streams of living water forevermore, not just in metaphor, but in reality, face to face. And so I want to leave you with this vision of the heavenly city. The destination of those who have put their trust in the King of, King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus. From Revelation, John writes these words. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign, you, will reign forever and ever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servant what must soon take place. And then hear this from the mouth of Jesus himself. Behold, look, see, 
Use your mind's eye. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Amen. Let's pray. For your name's sake, Lord, not for ours, but for your name's sake, we commit again to be those who walk on the path of righteousness, those who shun the way of evil, who refuse to take on the worldview that wickedness is fun, or that lawlessness is our true freedom. And Lord, we instead defer to a greater wisdom. We look to the word of God. And we acknowledge, Lord, that these words are more than just words for us to understand, Lord. They're meant to be meditated on, practiced, such that we would adopt the mind of God in our daily life. Lord, for my brothers and sisters here, I just lift each one to you, Lord, whether they're in a season of abundance right now or a season of trouble. You see their heart, Lord, you see each one. And Lord, by your spirit, would you just minister life to them again today? Remind them, Lord, those who stand in winter right now, that you will bear fruit through them in due season. To be humble and accept the season that you've called them to. It's a gift from you. And for those, Lord, who find themselves in abundance right now, I just pray that they would lock away in, the, in their minds and their hearts the fact that you are faithful, that you are unchanging. Lord, that they would recall the past deeds of faithfulness in the day of trouble. Lord, that each of us would draw waters of life from your word and from your spirit in that way. Through all seasons, for your glory, your namesake, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.